Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 175 of the Fun with Cars F1 podcast for coverage of the Malaysian Grand Prix out of Kuala Lumpur. Lumpur. I'm Robin Warner. And I am Jim Lau, and it was great to see the cars back in action, and this time including um, almost 20 cars, 19 cars. Uh, well, 20, for, 20 were there and running at one point. Right. Um, but uh, I was uh, particularly excited to see uh, that Manor GP was able to actually get the car started this time and yes. turn some laps. And, of course, there were problems that prevented Will Stevens from starting the race. But at least they were out there and running. And, uh, uh, and you know, Roberto Mary actually made his way all the way through to the finish of the race a couple laps down. But still, anyway, um, we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit. But I was just excited to see that. And, uh, hey, that's, that's a good good sort of... Uh, you know, feel good backmarker little guy story to uh, to report on. Absolutely, the the results of the Malaysian Grand Prix were a little bit more normal. But uh, we want to start with some follow up and start with a comment on funwithcars.com, which we really appreciated about our first podcast of the uh, of the season. It's from Frank. He says, "Hi guys, I love your podcast, but would like to comment on the Sauber Vandegaard theme." I think Vandercard paid a lot of money last year, even though he was only the test driver and would have paid again this year. This was the contract. He only committed to that role last year and paid it because he would be he would have a proper drive in 2015. So Sauber took his, or his father-in-law's, money, but threw him out when somebody with a bigger check came along. They did not, they did not bother to settle with him or with Sutil for that matter. I think it is a very bad way to do business, and therefore the judges in Switzerland and in Australia ruled the same way. I'm very surprised that Sauber is acting that way. Frank, uh, basically, we agree. Yeah, it was bad, bad form. Yeah, and I'm not sure we made the point super clearly on the last show, but uh, what what I wonder is like how with Sauber the decision making went this way that like they would have known that they had a contract with Vandergaard to, to the like well let's sign some other people and just hope it works out i mean like how you know who made that call and how did it get as far as it did um with uh, in that way because that was that was really weird so yeah um having having seen you know the, the way the story is um it's a shame that uh, guido had to go through the courts and stuff to do that uh but the ultimate resolution now as we understand it is that uh he's gotten a payout of i think 15 million euro um as uh like a hey sorry we screwed up and broke your contract and uh you can go on with your life now but um which well i mean i think that's fair and it should kind of give sauber the hey crime doesn't pay kind of warning right it wasn't specifically crime per se but certainly well, contractual of, agreements yeah, breach of contract could right. arguably i guess that's civil not criminal but uh, but either way you know it's it now the prospects, civil doesn't pay yeah mm, civil mm, infractions civil infractions but i mean all joking aside genuinely don't do that I, why push Vandergaard aside after commitments were made like that? Uh, we we wish the best for uh, Mr. Vandergaard. Right, and as we talked about, uh, you know, your comment I think before was sort of that these contracts are worth nothing and whatever. And I guess that's that's the case when all parties agree to something else, uh, which has been which has been done with uh, you know one team one driver wants to leave a team and there's another guy that's got a contract. But it's like, hey, if if everybody and enough money flies around behind the scenes, um, that you know. Nothing is nothing is set forever. Basically, is is what that really means. It's like yeah, okay, yes, this contract is written, and you know, Checo Perez has a three year contract with McLaren uh, until he doesn't, and you know, there weren't lawsuits and stuff about that. That was just all kind of happened behind the scenes to sort of say, okay, whatever needs to happen to, you know, find him another drive somewhere. You know, McLaren wanted to go a different route, and things changed. But um, you know, this this is a little different. Where this really seems like a team, you know, really screwing over a driver and in, in, in breach of a contract that. It wasn't, you know, there was no upside or reason for uh, Guido to want to go that route. So yeah, I think my it's... my comment was concern that more and more contracts don't carry any amount of weight, and this interaction and this uh, transpondence that it it kind of proved that hey, okay, they still do carry some weight. Thank goodness. Right. Yeah. So and if and if somebody gets screwed, then at least they do have a way of. Uh, you know, getting getting the word out. Um, but I guess the last thing on that, though, is it does seem now um, unlikely that we're going to see Guido Vandergaard in another F1 car. Um, how much of that is to do with this? Um, I mean, it's it was sort of unlikely anyway um, if he didn't have a contract. But, um, you know, I wonder now if, uh, you know, who knows, if, if Manor keeps moving forward and they say, oh, we need another guy, or if, uh, you know, if Guido will sign as a reserve driver for someone. Um, so it's, it's still like um, he sort of said, yeah, I got this money now, but uh, that may be, you know, maybe that's it. I don't know that I have much of an F1 career at this point. Well, with luck, uh, something can be put together for 2016. Uh, but 
yeah, for 2015, it seems quite unlikely. Um, I also uh, want to thank everyone um, that uh, gave us comments on the Facebook page for our podcast on the Australian Grand Prix, um, especially the thank yous for our Schwarzenegger impressions <laughs> and the um, and the uh, introduction that I put together. And uh, with that in mind, we do uh, have an announcement. Uh, Jim Lau, um, as it turned out, eked out a lead in uh, fans, and he is the winner of the Schwarzenegger impersonation. Oh, I forgot it was an actual uh, competition. I thought it, it was well, right. of sorts. I suppose it was. Yeah. Wow. Well, I I feel honored to uh, have gotten this honor. Well, give us give us a victory impression. No. Yes. Um, yes. Well, we did have. Where a, do we have to get to? We <laughs> we had a request from um, Colin Sato. Oh no, not um, from Sean Scanlon on the Facebook page that we do the entire Austrian Grand Prix podcast in the Arnold voices, ah. which. If that doesn't get old after about, hello, everybody, and welcome to Fun With Cars. Oh, man. Then, I can only imagine episode 100 and, uh, uh, I can't do that. You know, but, hey, maybe I can. You, you know what? If if we tried to do the whole thing in Austrian accents, what I would do is some sort of mix of British, Italian, German, American, and whatever Anglophile nonsense that comes out of my mouth. <laughs> so it would be many accents. So everybody wins. Because <laughs> when that happens, wow. Um, yeah, okay. Um, also, uh, I had Colin Sato in my mind because he posted uh, some interesting stuff to the Facebook page as well about McLaren's performance. And uh, it sounds well, like... Specifically the Honda in that McLaren. Yes, um, and uh, he, he's got, uh, I guess, he's on some forums and whatnot, has some inside information about this a little bit uh, that's not verified, but all seems very plausible about how uh, all the problems with McLaren um, have, have kind of really gone back to um, its packaging in the car and the uh, the heat and cooling issues, and, and some of it to do with uh, the way that they're packaging their um, kinetic um, MGU um, is, is going to be, uh, it's like in between the engine and transmission, and it all worked out fine on a dyno when Honda was able to test it, but in the car, where that's a load-bearing member, um, they had problems with packaging and problems with that distressing, and the seal failures they were talking about um, were evidently, according to the source anyway, um, you know, the seals between these these various units, and uh, so it's some interesting stuff. If you're interested in it, um, you can check on the uh, on the Facebook page for that, but uh, he's basically saying that, you know, the Honda was detuned uh, heavily in Melbourne to just try to make it last, which we, I think, you know, kind of uh, had assumed as well. Right. Um, and, uh, and the one did. Um, and, you know, of course, in today's race, we had um, very uh, uh, not spectacular failures, another whimpering, uh, you know, end of a race. Alonzo was back, I mean, in terms of follow-up and all that. Uh, I think the, uh, you know, chaos theories about... Uh, about Alonso have died down to some extent now, and it's sort of like, okay, well, he had this crash, but he's back now, and this is not some grand crazy plan, or maybe it is. I don't know. He but. did. He did blame the steering of the car, by the way. So there is. St- it's it's far from completely solved. Like, oh, that's that, but it is. It is certainly not at the at, at the uh, sharpness of uh, of where it was a couple of weeks ago. And both cars, they did perform rel- relatively better than they did in Australia. And uh, neither car lasted the full race distance. But considering the extreme heat and humidity of Malaysia, I think it's reasonable that uh, this was a new kind of test and they were once again uh, straining. And the point about seals breaking everything like that as the car become as the engine becomes properly load bearing in the car, that makes sense to me because it would be much harder for Honda to predict and model these inferences than it would be to just build the engine purely on its own so not like they wouldn't be talking with mclaren but there's there's only so much you can simulate yeah well and i mean i wonder how much of the honda f1 engine program um is related to the former honda f1 engine program because it's not like they don't know how to make good engines and there's obviously an indycar department which i think is a separate company anyway but you know with honda branding with elmore and all that but uh you know it's like you know, it's not like the engineers were like, wait, this is a this is a load-bearing part of that. Well, hold on, what? You're sending forces through it? Like, they would have had some knowledge in some way to, you know, if it's not that easy to simulate that much force on a shaker rig or something. But it's still like, okay, to understand the, the extent of exactly how the packaging is going to go around the engine and exactly what the forces are, I get that that's difficult. But it is still like, 
you know, this is not a brand new company no one's ever heard of that's building an engine that they've never built before. And it's just like, okay, yes, this is pushing some technology forward and trying to come up with some clever packaging and all that. And obviously so far it's not really working for them yet, but um, it is good to see a step forward in Malaysia compared to Australia. Um, that's always always good to see some progress. And I had uh, two cars lasting longer in the race than before. Um, and I guess I'm, the total distance for the two cars together is more than what they had before with just one car, uh, not even making around the formation lap. So and, and Well, it's, if, you, if you did it that way, the Hondas won the race comfortably because they finished 56 laps before anybody. Well, in terms of how they finished, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, yeah, it's uh, it, it's been, uh, you know, it's good to see uh, Alonso back in the car. I mean, that was a big question mark if this, if, if that, uh, you know, the injury and the, the, crop, uh, the, the fallout from that carried on. That would be a much bigger concern, um, you know. The, uh, missing missing one race, of course, was not great, but uh, to miss multiple races and that would really, comp- you know, continue to raise questions. So Alonso has been checked out; he's okay, he's back. And also Valtteri Bottas, his back injury apparently is—they've made a little bit of a few adjustments in the car to make him right. look more comfortable. His seat's and his, a little different, and everything apparently is healed up pretty well, which is good because back injuries usually take forever to heal. There's so little you can do for them. So the oh, fact man. that they've been able to uh, sort him out, um, and he's apparently back to they said basically full strength i mean you know it's like oh i feel 100% and you know i that's great if that's true <laughs> he's, uh, he's fine he's young he's fit and he healed quickly and that is fantastic okay uh, in other news uh i made a you know nice little uh, comment about it in my intro there's a 20 race calendar this season and on and on yeah there's not it's 19 races the german grand prix has been canceled it is officially gone um it was going to be at Hockenheim this year. And now, um, not only that, uh, Bernie is saying, well, they might not be back next year, and the Italian Grand Prix might not be around. Yeah, the economics have been weird in the German Grand Prix, um, where it's like, okay, it's a big country of, there's lots of German fans, there's lots of German drivers, obviously Mercedes and Vettel and Rosberg, there's all kinds of reasons that, you know, German folks would like it. But I think this is one of those unsustainability problems where the amount of money that FIA, or I guess Formula One, is asking for the promoters to come up with really just doesn't line up with what, you know, ticket prices can be and how expensive they can make it and so on. Uh, and then, of course, you know, the Nürburgring uh, famously a couple of years ago has gone through bankruptcy and all these things. So there, that was the first thing was like, OK, well, the you know German Grand Prix is not going to be at Hockenheim, but maybe it'll be at Nürburgring. And the Nürburgring organizers were like, what? No, it's not. That's, that's not going to work. And yeah. then they had to switch it around. And now it's like, OK, well, maybe it's not going to be this at all. So this has been a problem. And apparently even Mercedes um, kicked in or offered to kick in like half the money or something. And so even making it sustainable potentially for one year. Um, just as a stopgap to be like, hey, this is our home race, and we want to, you know, it's a big deal for them, obviously, part, you know, promotional-wise and marketing and so on. And uh, and even with that offer, apparently, it was not enough to, um, you know, to for the organizers to say, you know what, we can actually still make this work. Or if the organizers knew what, you know, is sort of now coming out now from Bernie, um, is is that, hey, this that would just be a one-year stopgap, and we know that longer-term, you know they need to they need to solve this problem in terms of what the what the economics are rather than just sort of limp it along for one more year. So uh, if that's the case, then uh, that's that's a shame. And hopefully that's the kind of thing that brings um, change. You know to the to Formula One to say, hey, this isn't right. You know why why is this happening and why are we charging when of course you can find money from you know Russia and you can find money from the Middle East and you know the, the Azerbaijan race is coming uh, next year and all that still. Then it's like. You know, there is money in the world and people that want to spend it. But if you're if you're starting to lose, I mean, Germany is one thing, but Italy, man, Monza, like, right, uh, no, exactly. That's a whole. That's to me is another level of, uh, of because you know, German, of course, we've gone back and forth between two races, so it's a little bit right. less and of to an that iconic point, thing anyway. To that point, quickly, I, I I stated it backwards. It was supposed to be Nurburgring this year. Hockenheim was asked to step up. They couldn't. Oh right. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I had it backwards, and uh, that is my fault. But anyway, yes. Uh, Europe, as the venue for Formula One racing, has been dropping for a while. And for a while, we're like, that's okay. This is a world championship, and it's becoming more and more worldly. It's spanning the world. That's a good thing. But now, Europe is definitely the hub. And Europe is still a big part of the world, an important big part of the world. And they're playing a smaller and smaller role in this, and we're spending more and more time in Asia Asia's great. And Mexico, to be fair. Well, and Mexico, to be fair. But more more and more of the races, I mean, depending on how you count Russia, we're on that side of the globe. And uh, that's fine, but you're going to get too lump-sided the other way. Do you know what I mean? Right. Yeah, and I think there's if – you, if you lose a, a core base of European fans, then that's a problem. But then the other question, though, is – 
doesn't matter where some of these races are. I mean, there can be races in far-flung parts of the world, but if they're all on TV, to all the fans that want to watch them on TV, then all you know, all that really changes from one to another is can I go see this race in person, and uh, and you know how much the you know that part of it matters. And and of course, I think in the you know the way that uh, you know the internet and TV and everything have have become, it's just like it matters less and less that there's a, a crowd there. But ultimately, um, you know that would be a shame if there's just you know the, the race cars are out somewhere, no one's there to see them in person. It's just a matter of broadcasting them over the internet and over TV. But um, it does look like it's kind of you know headed that way where it's like we can have races pretty much anywhere in the world. We can have it at a weird time for local time as long as it makes sense for you know European or American audiences to watch on TV. Uh, but that's that doesn't seem sustainable, though. It seems like you need that core base of fans and keeping them energized, letting them see the the people and the cars and the technology and everything in person to uh, you know really just kind of keep the sport going. Completely, completely agree. Um, in other news, uh, Williams does now have a reserve driver. Oh, finally, we've uh, we've you know so you put together uh, a, a page to sort of partly clear up. You know, test driver, reserve driver, development driver, kind of who, what drivers are where, because we a lot of times we'll hear about a driver being affiliated with a team, but it's not always clear, uh, you know, who is in what role. Right. So you put together this page on our site, um, but is it form, uh, funwithcars.com slash F1 teams? Correct. Okay. And uh, and so if anyone's, you know, got questions about who's who's where and all that, you can always just kind of refer to that as a, a nice little page that you put together. Yeah, it's a page I put together that is a living document. It will be refined over time and uh, add, things will be added to it. Um, one of which will be that uh, Williams now has Adrian Sutil as its official um, reserve driver. He is the one and only reserve driver. Susie Wolf is the one and only test driver. And Alex Lynn is the one and only development driver. Clearly, uh, the absolute minimum of drivers that uh, a team needs is <laughs> what Williams has. So... Good. Good for them. I'm happy that Adrian has found a role that keeps him in F1. Uh, I feel that the German never really got a full opportunity to show off his skills. But, you know, as time moves on, it's going to be harder and harder for him to do that. So this this is a good role for him. That is a tall man. Yes. Shockingly so. Shockingly so. So um, I think that brings us to the race today. Um, and I think few would disagree that uh, we had a more exciting race weekend overall than we had in Australia. Um, yes. We had qualifying where it was like what everyone got kind of a lap to set and then um, and then all hell broke loose with the weather. Um, and then that, you know, that was uh, that was fun uh, just to kind of uh, mix things up. It's been a while since we've had a, a wet qualifying that I remember. So um, that was uh, it was a shame for Kimi Raikkonen, um, who did not get through to Q3. I guess it was Q2 when the rain came out. Um, so uh, it was uh, too bad to see. I mean, first of all, uh, McLaren getting bumped out in the uh, in the beginning. Um, but it was cool to see. Okay, so Roberto Mary was able to set laps in the Manor Grand Prix car, um, and uh, it was outside the 107 percent rule. But uh, the FIA was said, okay, yeah, you're close enough in time. They were 0.4 seconds off of 107 percent. So that's sort of close enough. And that would have been sad if they if they got to the uh, got to the race, qualified, you know, one or both cars. And then we're just that far off, and the, and the FIA is like, no, nope, you can't do it. I mean, technically, that is the the spirit of the rules, and that the point of the rules is that you don't have someone going around super, super slowly. But um, I thought it was cool of the FIA, as much as uh, you know, that can be cool about these things to say, you know what? Okay, you can still get in the car, or you still get in the race, uh, you're still qualified, and uh, both cars were actually eligible to be in the race. Although, of course, Will Stevens had a technical problem. But anyway, um, so Kimi Raikkonen got just caught out by the timing and did not get through to Q3. When, of course, in Q3. Um, it was delayed a lot, but everybody had the same conditions to work from. So that was one actual session we could do. Q2 was all about this, like, did you get a lap in in time and, and how did that work? So um, otherwise, though, the, uh, you know, just uh, the Mercedes um, still looked, you know, very, very strong. Um, but at the end of it, of course, uh, Vettel was able to uh, to beat Rosberg's time. And uh, and then Hamilton, you know, ended up on, it was his first, it was his bank lap uh, for Q3 that ended up being the pole time. Um, he did not improve on his second uh, second run, so I'm sure he's glad that he eked out in front of uh, Vettel for uh, for pole. Uh, but then, of course, that didn't matter in the race because Vettel got around him and uh, and came to uh, to bring Ferrari back on top. Yeah, the qualifying was quite interesting because uh, Q1 was dry, but rain was starting to threat. Q2 was dry at the beginning, became wet. Just and, the very, very beginning. Yeah, and, and, and just enough time for uh, most people to put in a banker lap. And then uh, the rain started coming, and the people that didn't get a good lap in were hosed. Um, chief among them, I will say, is Kimi Raikkonen. Out of luck, not perfect timing, he was hosed. I don't think 
Lewis Hamilton's time eked out pole. I think it was kind of a devastating lap. I mean, he was something like, if I remember correctly, 1.2 seconds clear of Vettel. It was it was a big get. And um, it's, uh, well, I'm going to look it up. That's what I'll do. It was, oh, wow. No, oh, I'm wrong. Okay. Upon looking it up, it was a lot closer. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I thought, because it was there was some question if Vettel was even going to make it, uh, was could even you know top that, and uh, and then if Rosberg even could come through being the last man on track, and then of course Rosberg lap was pretty messy by the end of it, and then we didn't really see much of Hamilton's lap, but uh, as it came through, you know Vettel went second, and then Rosberg you know backed out, had to back off a little bit, so uh, ultimately you know the 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 time that Lewis said at the beginning of the session uh, was was it, and uh, but anyway, here's the thing that made it work. Here's the thing: it was it was raining lap, raining lap. There's a lot of question marks on development, uh, not development, but setup of the car. Um, even simple things can play a bigger role in a wet lap than the actual performance of the car. So you have to take it with a little bit of grain of salt of who goes where. And uh, at least the American coverage was totally up in arms of like, oh my God, Ferrari's back, Ferrari's back. And I was like, no, come on. It just, Vettel's a great driver. He got a good time. The car's solid, but this doesn't really mean anything. But then Sunday comes, and in a sore, in sorts, I'm kind of proven wrong. Vettel's back. <laughs> but I still don't think that means nearly as much for Ferrari as um, some other people think. But let's start. I mean, you tell me. What do you think about Ferrari's performance since they've won a race now? They are one for one, Mercedes and Ferrari. Right. And uh, obviously Vettel gets all the glory for winning the race. But let's not forget, Kimi Raikkonen started 11th. He finished 4th. He was just off the podium. and uh, And after... Finishing or starting 11th, um, having a tire cut down in a collision that was really not his fault at all. I think it's Felipe Nazar that uh, broke, you know, uh, hit, punctured the tire, had the tire, you know, fail spectacularly on the car, um, you know, just after the, uh, the pit entrance. So he had to go all the way around the track, gets exactly in, pit right. stop, changes tires. Safety car helps him there to get caught back up, but then still has to battle his way all the way through the field and finishes fourth. So that tells you that, you know, obviously Sebastian Vettel did a great job, um, but Kimi Raikkonen, man, he... Uh, to to just you know keep things moving, keep that car going, keep it you know the car stayed in one piece and had the pace to uh, to to hang on to it. Uh, they were able to do really well on their tires, both drivers. So um, yeah, it really does seem like Ferrari is is properly back in the hunt here. And um, there was some question over Mercedes uh, pit stop strategy and whether that was the right thing to do. Um, but uh, the team has come out and said Mercedes that is um, has said that it was really just the pace, not the strategy that uh, you know cost them the win today. Mercedes is wrong. I, I I'm sorry, they were wrong. I they were defending a strategy that was flawed. And I say this as someone that wasn't in the scrum of things, making the decisions in real time that they had to make. But in hindsight, at least, you can look at that and say, oh, we we pit way too early. We gave Vettel a huge advantage at the early in the race that really stacked the cards in his favor. Think about this. He he was behind one of the Mercedes, and uh, things were going on. It was lap five when the uh, caution, uh, when the when the pace car, the pace car came out to uh, make sure that everything was controlled to get uh, uh, Marcus Erickson uh, out of harm's way. Right. And the both Mercedes cars pit. They stacked their, they stacked their pit, Lam- Hamilton, then Rosberg. And so all of a sudden, Sebastian Vettel has been gained a spot. Now he's in first place, and he's got the two other fastest cars out there, both Mercedes, Several places behind, they came on back onto the track. If I remember correctly, sixth and ninth. So, all of a sudden, they have to get through a few other people before they even get to Vettel, let alone pass him. Well, I'm not sure that the Rosberg pit mattered in the grand scheme of things. It didn't seem like he ever quite had the pace to be in with to, to challenge that. I mean, I guess having if he were behind Vettel and were close enough to push him a little bit, that may have ever so slightly changed you know it could have maybe you know Vettel wore his tires a little bit more or something like that but I feel like it's really just if anything the Hamilton um, who you know pit first so the fact that they stacked it shouldn't really matter for that but just whether pitting Hamilton under the you know as a safety car first came out was a good call and of course it was not a good call well easy for us to say right? yeah from, and I'm saying it from you know at home on the couch and and after the race and seeing how it pans out but so Toto Wolf in the in this article and this is a, this will be in the show notes as well um, you know says okay that didn't help us 
but it would be wrong to say like that was the key to losing your race. And uh, and I think that's that you know that that makes sense when you think about the last you know after the last round of pit stops when it was a, a fight to the finish for uh, both uh, I was gonna say Vettel and the Red Bull <laughs> Vettel and the Ferrari and <laughs> um, yeah I'm still not quite uh, quite used to that um, and of course uh, you know we'll say Hamilton and the McLaren just for old times' sake. Hey, but that um, Sauber BMW was doing oh, really yeah. well. And and the the, the the Honda oh wait no um, <laughs> but. Um, you know, so and that was, you know, we saw first Hamilton was taking time out of out of Vettel's uh, lead, and it was it was cutting down and coming down, and then it just kind of wasn't. You know, I think it was maybe maybe Hamilton was overdriving his tires a little bit. Um, I think there was a, a, a you know an emotional uh, component to this as well, where things did start to get a little unravelly uh, with you know the team talking to, to Hamilton and keep coming back. Oh, don't talk to me in the corners, and oh, I'm trying to ah, like I'm trying to do my thing here, and you can't do it. Like just kind of the the tension there, which if that translates into probably using more tire than is maybe necessary. Um, you know, we actually, you know, so far this year, we haven't seen any fuel concerns yet. I don't think we've seen anyone that has to back off for fuel. So, so far, as, as far as we know, everyone was fine on fuel consumption. But, yeah, but well, tires, they're getting which, better at that. And they have right. a year's worth of data on that as well now. But tires, though, did seem to be a big factor with the temperatures and everything in Malaysia. And, of course, think about back at the beginning of the race, um, when or five laps in, when the call was made to, uh, to pit these guys, there was still this threat of rain showing up before the end of the race. And that would have potentially thrown the strategy wide open. So at that point, sort of, you know, being, you know, just kind of getting as many as many variables out of the way as possible to say, okay, we had a safety car. You know, you don't always know how long the safety car's period is going to last and then how that's all going to pan out. So, uh, you know, it's I don't think this is, uh, and I think you probably agree, it's not, you know, you don't want to extrapolate and say, oh, Mercedes' strategy is all wrong and that's how, you know, they're going to lose the championship. Ferrari clearly is going to walk away with it because they're amazing and, uh, you know, Reese Rosberg oh, is just no, no, done. no, no, no. I, I thought we agreed. The, the, the championship's over. I mean, Ray- we're, we're, we're done. I mean, there's no... <laughs> I, I don't plan on watching this- any further... We're basically <laughs> this is testing for 2016 yeah. from now on. Yeah. Uh, congratulations to five-time world champion Sebastian Vettel. Yes, of course, and this is devastating for Hamilton, who's still in the lead of the championship, by the way. But I'm sure he's lost it by now, and it's all going to be Ferrari's runaway. Well, it's a mental game, as you know. Yeah. And now Ferrari has the edge. Well, that's that's true. Um, but it is uh, just honestly great to see uh, a challenge to Mercedes, um, and sort of in a way, it doesn't matter who that is. But it was exciting when it was Williams, sort of, kind of maybe for a little while there. Um, but to see that, um, you know, in, in the Mercedes article, they mentioned like, you know, this was a new situation for us for a really long time that we weren't just in control of the race, which is pretty much true. I mean, there were times when you know the um, one-off races where um, there were you know brake problems, and obviously when you know the, the, the spa, you know, with Mercedes and the cars crashing into each other, all these kind of things where they kind of lost control on their own, but for for someone else to be properly challenging uh, for for the race win and sort of very little you know that you know, Hamilton could do about it um, that that's interesting though and it's and it's cool to see um, Vettel obviously is just so excited now and very emotional about this um, being at Ferrari and you know to get the Ferrari team back to their winning ways and all these kind of things um, I have to say on a uh, personal level I I hate that quote that kept coming up on our on our coverage of oh you know Sergio Marchionne saying oh a Ferrari that does not win is not a Ferrari it's like that's what yeah. a dumb thing to yeah, say yeah McLaren that... that doesn't win isn't a McLaren and on and on and on yeah it it doesn't make sense I, and I completely agree with you it's nice to see Ferrari uh, closer and you could argue that Malaysia is a lot more consistent with the um, I'll use air quotes here typical racetrack for Formula One. Um, as opposed to Australia, which is a little bit more of a one-off, slower speed, a little bit choppier. So in that sense, this is the type of performance gap we can see going forward throughout the season, which means Ferrari will be a little bit closer. Mercedes certainly still has an edge in straight performance. Right, I agree with that. And I think the the heat as well is a factor that's not unique to Malaysia, but it's definitely a factor. And uh, and I think, you know, if they look at under more quote-unquote normal, you know, tire temperatures and circumstances and so on, um, it, it doesn't seem like Ferrari really just has the edge overall. But yeah, the way that um, it sounds like, you know, even if, if Lewis hadn't used so many tires in practice and, and in, you know, Q1 or whatever, um, like however, however the soft tire situation worked out such that Lewis did not have a new set to put on, um, you know, they'll be looking at that as well um, and, and, you know, making these decisions going forward so it's not like um a you know dramatic loss for uh for mercedes in the grand scheme of the season uh but yeah and the, and the other thing that I'm, I'm excited to see is hopefully 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 like we never really saw last year um i guess maybe a few times but we'll have uh, it'll be four-way fighting instead of two or three you know or one car at the top you know having kimi raikkonen up in there mixing it up um yeah. and 
hopefully for a race win. I mean, it'd be great to see him get back whoa, to whoa, success. Whoa, 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 whoa. Don't say hopefully. Uh, look, you gave uh, Raikkonen a lot of credit earlier on in the show, and I applaud that. I was a little upset because I wanted to give him a bunch of credit. Raikkonen is quite quick, and he has so far had a couple of uh, unlucky race races. You know, in Australia, he... He had to retire the car, blamed himself, quite mature, wasn't expecting that. And here he had the puncture, as you said, right at the beginning of the race, really bad timing. But also, like I mentioned, he had what I would argue is largely bad luck in qualifying as well. Even that, he still scored some points. He will be there. I think he will be a very strong competitor for Ferrari. And for me personally, just as likely to give wins to the Scuderia as Sebastian Vettel. That's my take. Rosberg, more than anyone, I he seems to be the one that's on the back foot just a touch, and it'll be interesting to see how his season develops. Yeah, I am not feeling so hot about my uh, Rosberg for the championship prediction, thinking he was going to get clever and all that, and, you know, it's early days, but yeah. it's like just the, the body language and stuff. I mean, I expected, we expected more out of Lewis to be really, you know, down and pissed off at the at the podium um, because he, he Mature, sometimes... Mature, reserved, still respectful to the team, right. at least in public. And, and you know, he's... It was, you know, Nico was the one that really came out and you could sort of tell, okay, yeah, he's giving a smile for the cameras and whatever, but um, just his body language and just and all that. But Lewis, um, you know, maybe he wasn't, you know, naturally going to be beaming from ear to ear, of course, but um, still looked, you know, genuine in what he was talking about. But then, you know, even when they were interviewing Rosberg, that Lewis and Vettel were going back and forth and, you know, just like properly kind of talking about the, talking about whatever they were talking about. Yeah. I don't know. How much Chummy, multiple champions. Just- right. But just like relaxed and you know that's the kind of time where it's like you're not expected you're not you know uh, it, it's not a requirement to sort of you know be nice to the other guys on the podium while the other while the third guy's being interviewed it's like he could have sat there and stared off into space and you know people would be like okay well that's lewis being lewis but it's like no he was he was he seemed sort of okay you know you know at some level maybe internalizing like okay, okay we didn't win ferrari did vettel's there he's doing well but we know, you know, there were a couple things with tires that could have gone differently, a couple things with strategies and right. pace and whatever. Like, this isn't the end of the world. But Rosberg was, like, just super just down about everything. And, you yes. know, it just really seemed to be, like, a, a more emotional thing for him. So um, I'm sure on some level he wants to – I mean, obviously everybody wants to win. But he wants to win, you know, uh, learn the lessons from last year and start to really take out, uh, you know, points anywhere he possibly can – uh, to to build build up a lead if possible, but really stay stay as close as possible, and uh, and so it's like every race where that doesn't happen, he's like, this is this is not what I need, you know, this is not going to be what helps me coming to the you know last quarter of the season when we can start to see to the finish and uh, and you know see where the points are. So it's like it's like Rosberg's being the emotional one now. Yeah, yeah, I completely agreed. I was impressed and happy to see Hamilton's lack of emotional charge on the podium. He was just like you say, he was. He was well put together. He was controlled. It was a. It was good to see a man that still has plenty of inner confidence to push the season forward. And you could argue that. Uh, I mean, it, again, it's with hindsight, but you can see it in um, the qualifying decisions they made. The may they put soft tires on the Mercedes earlier than they might have needed to, mm-hmm. and uh, had one fewer set to work with um, when it came to the race day that played a role you know so there's all kinds of things that mercedes perhaps didn't have to think about quite so critically because it's like well our pace is so much better than everyone else that whatever we can make do that might not be the case so that will um spice things up a little bit which we absolutely appreciate also do not discount williams they there's an ebb and flow to speed and i think if Williams can get some development work done that goes in the right direction, they'll be right there. Do they have a development driver? I haven't been keeping track. Um, you know, they should they should look into they one. Should, they should look into getting some drivers. That would drivers. be a good hire. Teams need like 10 drivers, man. That's definitely a thing. Uh, <laughs> he's, our, he's our Sunday afternoon on the simulator um, when it's above 70 degrees day guy. Yeah. And, and I mean... It's a far off, of course, for race wins, but, you know, uh, McLaren Honda have said right from the offset, even from testing, like, you know, the first few races are not a throwaway entirely, but like, wait till we get to Europe, basically, that hopefully they have a big step forward, which will, you know, hopefully bring them to mid-pack and maybe, you know, up there in with a shout or whatever. That's, that's you know, a big ask, of course. But um, Well, but look, look at what McLaren did last year. They had kind of what proved to be a little bit of a one-off in Australia. They did quite well there. Mm-hmm. They struggled for a while, but by the end of the season, they were... 
they were top five guys. Right. And this, of course, the new powertrain, of course, is going to be more challenges and uh, and all that. But, you know, I think Williams, we could see the same thing. Obviously, that's, um, you know, one of the mid-level teams in terms of budget, certainly not at the top end. Um, so, yeah, as soon as we get back to uh, the European rounds, uh, we could see a good step forward for, for Williams that could bring them right up there with with McLaren, uh, with Mercedes <laughs> and Ferrari. Man, I'm just confused That today. BMW Sauber, man. No, here's... A, and I want to say, so it was, really, it was a great day for Italy and well-deserved. Um, and it wasn't just Ferrari. It was the uh, Toro Rosos that outperformed, handily outperformed the, uh, quote-unquote, here come the air quotes again, parent company, Red Bull. Toro Rosso finished 7th and 8th. Red Bull finished ninth and 10th. And it was age before experience uh, in both cases, Max Verstappen ahead of Carlos Sainz and Daniel Kafiat ahead of Daniel Ricardo, but much more team to team here. We're talking about seventh versus 10th um, best for Toro Rosso versus worst for Red Bull. And they were just right on top of each other makes it harder for Red Bull to argue about the Renault power plant in my, in my opinion. Yeah, and it's it's a bit weird because you wouldn't think that uh, the STR would have you know a, a stronger you know chassis performance, knowing it's the same engine, than you know the Adrian Newey designed or at least consulted on uh, you know RB11 and all that. But um, yeah, it's like just apparently this time it was a lot of brake issues. I mean, we could see every single lap just all kinds of brake dust pouring out of this out of the brakes uh, and, and especially the fronts um, on this circuit. And we know the circuit's always been hard on brakes, especially you've got the two really long straightaways right, you know, sort of either side of the main grandstand. And every time you got to bring the car way down from speed and uh, just you know just brake dust, just carbon was pouring out of there. Um, Ricardo said he felt like he was just a passenger in the in the, in the car, which obviously is a bit of a uh, bit of hyperbole there because that's, that's yeah uh, wait. <laughs> yeah um so it's like the brakes are also steering the car and applying the gas when necessary that's I, I, in but, a way kind of impressive yeah those are some pretty actually amazing if that's a brake issue then that's a pretty amazing if, brake if issue. the result from that is just a little bit of brake dust i still say well done to yeah. the brakes um so uh but yeah it was um you know if uh, you know if, uh, can they blame Renault for the brake issues you know it's like where Ooh, that would be i'm looking forward to that it's like, well, if the power plant were better, then the brakes wouldn't have to. But, you know, then there was some some question if maybe, you know, the setup was set up more for a wet setup on the car. And then, the, you know, it was too much cooling or uh, uh, not enough cooling, um, which would have been OK for the for the wet. But now in, in the hot, dry, it was not a problem. Like, I don't know. But yeah. uh, hopefully that's not a, a, a long term thing, because I'd like to see um, whatever they like to see, you know, less sort of politics and more just racing uh, so that it's not. Um, you know this this rift that's getting bigger and bigger between between Red Bull and Renault. I mean, um, now it's it's like it's like a relationship going wrong. Where you know, in these interviews with Christian Horner, it's like, well, you'll have to ask the engine partner. We have an engine partner, and the engine partner is not doing well. But engine partner over here, it's like I don't want to say Renault <laughs> and the whole thing. Yeah. And it's it's just like it's like I don't know what this person told you, but that's not true. It's just like it's really getting bad over there, and it seems hard to. Um, to really just get on the same side and move forward when you're in that kind of situation. You know, it's unlikely that, uh, that, that you know, this back and forth is going to help either side. So, um, you know, I just hopefully they can get, to, again, maybe it's maybe it's when they get back to Europe or maybe they can sort something out for China or whatever. But um, just to, uh, you know, have some de- have a decent result. Um, you know, we know they've got two good, re- two good drivers with uh, both Daniels. And, uh, you know, hopefully for them they can get back in front of STR. But it's a little bit exciting to see the youngsters um, just doing this well. I mean, getting some real results for both Carlos Sainz Jr. And, and Verstappen. Well, and the the two STR guys raced each other and did so cleanly and fiercely. It was It was quite nice to watch. Now, behind all four of the Red Bull-affiliated cars was the former Renault, uh, the Lotus, with Romain Grosjean behind the wheel. Now, Grosjean had what I have to say was a pretty brilliant spin and remarkable how little time he lost considering how fast the spin was and how it occurred. He just righted the car and kept going. But it resulted in what I will go out and say a very much deserved penalty from Ser- uh, to Sergio Perez for causing... Romain Grosjean's spin. Now, Romain Grosjean was passing Sergio on the outside, but from our television coverage, at least, it seemed very clear that Grosjean was ahead and uh, going trailing out fair, as out, far outside as he could, not pinching. And Sergio just had his front tire hit Romain's rear and uh, pretty black and white his fault. Yeah, and uh, like you said, Checo Perez says, I tried my best to avoid him, but it's a very fast corner, and you were just so on the limit, which 
that's kind of what everyone's here right. to do. Is that's you're why, all that's good, why you slow down a little. You're good drivers, and you're in fast cars, and you all know how this works, and you try not to hit each other. But, you know, also, if this were, you know, the first time this had ever happened with Perez, that might be a little bit different. But I agree with you. I think it's uh, it looked like, uh, you know, he was pushing, you know, as, as much as he was, and he could have dialed it back just ever so slightly, realizing, you know, what's gone on. Um, and, and it could have come out differently. But, uh, yeah, I, I think that that was, I think that was a deserved penalty as well. Um, and, you know, also the fact that it was uh, decided upon during the race, it was 10 seconds, he had to stop, you know, before getting service in the pit stops um, and uh, and carried on. So this didn't, you know, affect the results afterwards and whatever. I thought that, you know, the stewards did a good job, I think, in uh, making it happen, making the decision, moving on and uh, and going from there. Had to suck for Force India, though, because, like, moments after getting the word about the other oh, this penalty, um, there was also a penalty for Nico Hulkenberg, um, and uh, and that was with uh, Danny Kafiat, um, where they were going through the, the, you know, the opening corners, which um, was actually, you know, it's always kind of cool. The, uh, the the opening few, uh, few turns in Malaysia um, lead themselves to lots of, you know, you've got the first one, which is, uh, you know, wide, but then gets tighter and tighter and tighter, and then you've got this right, left, right, left complex. So, you know, trying to make a pass through there is a really kind of multi-corner, usually pretty cool process because somebody can get ahead as sort of an over-under, over-under sort of situation, um, which is a cool feature of the track. But, um, yeah, it just, it seemed like, um, uh, it, it seemed like, uh, uh, Hulkenberg just sort of, um, you know, was, either didn't see him what was going on or, or just pushed harder than he needed to and just didn't, uh, um, you know, I don't know, didn't give, didn't give space once uh, once he'd lost out. Right. And so Hulkenberg was penalized. And that one uh, for me and I think for both of us was a bit harder to see blame. That one seemed more race incident than anything else. But Hulkenberg got the blame and uh, he received, just like Sergio Perez, a 10 second stop and go penalty. Yeah. And that one, of course, there was uh, Daniel Ricardo was involved as well. It was sort of this three way battle um, with Ricardo, Fiat and Hulkenberg. And uh, and so it was just kind of in the in the chaos of making the passes through there and getting in front of Ricardo that uh, it got uh, kind of all, all came unglued. I, I, I would probably agree with you on there. I wouldn't have been uh, upset if they said, oh, you know, no, no further investigation, you know, no further action necessary. That uh, did kind of seem like a racing incident. But, um, you know, also, I, I don't think anyone could say that it was Fiat's fault either. So. Um, it, it is what it is. Um, also, apparently, um, Pastor Maldonado uh, earned three penalty points this weekend for not slowing to the minimum, um, uh, or I guess maximum time, not not slowing to the, the safety car time. Um, and it's supposed to be as soon as the safety car is announced, whether you're actually behind the car or not, you have to slow down. And, of course, this is some uh, some follow-on from last year um, with, uh, you know, uh, Bianchi's incident Bianchi, and yeah. all that. Um, but it's like not just, you know, uh, not just that you have to, st- you know, not pass the safety car, but also, you know, part of the point of the safety car is that you've got to be off the pace and at a safe speed. And apparently he exceeded that uh, um, speed. So this now means he has the most uh, penalty points any driver has ever had since they've had the penalty point system, which was arguably put in place as a bit of a reaction to uh, Maldonado. So Possibly. Possibly. Um, you know, which we were just ready to say how, you know, he had another unfortunate result this time they had to retire Maldonado's car which doesn't seem like his fault at all. Um, he had that issue and you know, opening what turn two or whatever in, in Australia again, didn't really seem like his fault in another retirement. And so we're just ready to be like, man, you know, Maldonado is just really getting the short end of the stick. And he kind of is, but this is something he would have had control over how much to slow down. And I don't know if different drivers, their dashes are showing them more information. It's easier for them to do or whatever, but well, maybe the brakes were, uh, making Maldonado go faster inadvertently. These brakes, they're really just taking over. Yeah. It's crazy. Uh, it's, it's not just the Red Bulls. Yeah. No, it, it's kind of unfortunate, but that is something that you can understand the FIA and hence us as well a bit being sensitive to. It's like we do not need any kind of repeat. That rule is in there for a repeat of Japan last year. That rule is there for a reason. It's logical and just uh, deal with it as best you can. Right. And of course, the whole you know, with these rules, the whole point is if if the penalty um, doesn't affect you, then it's, what's the point? Uh, you know, so if it's like, oh, well, you had to pay a thousand euro fine or 10,000 euro fine or whatever, it's like, that doesn't really, you know, matter unless you have so many of them that you just can't afford it anymore, which would be a long time for Pastor Maldonado. So, um, you know, it's, it's gotta be something. And this is what it is, is to sort of add these points to this penalty license, which just says, Hey, if you're, um, you know, consistently having issues, which Maldonado kind of has been, uh, that, uh, you know, that's that's something we're going to look at and uh, could be a factor in, in the future. But for now, he's still under the limit. He's not suspended or anything like that. But um, it's, you know, something that he's got to be aware of. So uh, we did see uh, only one Manor F1 car uh, actually take the uh, take the green flag, take the start of the race. But that 
uh, manner also finished the race. Hail Mary! Three laps down and uh, in 15th place. Uh, Formula1.com still calls it a Marusha. That is a Manor F1. And uh, we are very happy to see that and uh, very much hope that in China we'll see all 20 cars start the race, not just 19. And, uh, gosh, it would be fantastic to see all 20 finish. That would be, yeah, what are the, I guess we should you know, place bets on that. What is the first race we'll see 20 cars finish? <laughs> will that happen this season <laughs> well, at all, yeah, actually? Will it happen is the first question. Yeah. Yeah, but we, we had 11 cars finish uh, in Australia. We had 15 cars finish today. So by that math, we'll have 19 out of 20 finish in China. More than 23 finish. That'll be amazing. <laughs> a few extra cars have shown up here. Uh, here at the F1 show, <laughs> here at Fun With Cars, yeah. which is us, mm. everything is linear. Right. Except for naming things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, just really hopeful to see Manor. I, I, you know, if, as soon as it's available, you know, I feel like I just want to get like a Manor F1, you know, shirt or something just to be like kind of, I, it's such an underdog thing. And, of course, the naming with Manor Marusha, you know, FIA has such uh, very, very strict rules about what teams are allowed to be called, which is, you know, I'm sure it's there for some reason. But uh, it's it's like, you remember when there was the BMW Sauber Ferrari because they had changed power plants, but they hadn't gotten the application in at the right time. So it's like, no, your name has to have BMW in it. So they're like, really? This is the dumbest thing. BMW's like, we don't care. You know, it's weird having a name associated with this car that we have nothing to do with. Right. And, and the team is like, well, this is weird for us, too. And the FIA is like, that's the rules. So I don't know why it's got to be Manor Marusha, why they couldn't just say, hey, everybody knows. Anyone who cares enough to see what all the names are in the race is going to know what the deal is with Manor. And if they don't know, they can look into it. But it's but, like, well, but we are going to call it Manor. Right. That's what we will do. Right. And we have done so. So there you, there you have it. And it's, I saw the, the boxes from uh, of all the cargo stuff that was being loaded to Australia, because part of the point was they made all these announcements and stuff, you know, well after... Um, after testing and all that. So there was some question of, like, is this Manor thing for real? So when they started showing photos of, like, nope, the cargo for Manor is showing up here in Australia, and all the cargo and stuff still had the Marusha logos on it. So someone had put taken a Sharpie and just sort of crossed out and said, like, X Marusha. You know, it's just to be like, oh, well, it's, you know, we don't have the money to, like, get new cargo crates yet and you know, all the new signs for our stuff. But, no, we're really here, and it's X Marusha now. But still, hey, guys, this, this, this stuff is working. Great, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, it was a... It was m- a much nicer race to watch, and uh, we are excited uh, to see China coming in a couple of weeks. But um, I think it's time for us to uh, get to predicting. Yes. So, first of all, let us check the old prediction machine and see. Uh, okay, predictions have been calculated up to and including the Malaysian Grand Prix. So, ah, this was a question. Did anyone put... Um, Hamilton for pole and Vettel for the win? And the answer is no. No, Nobody was... Uh, uh, nobody was doing that. So there was one Vettel Vettel. Um, uh, well, no, one person, Camilio Rubio. Okay, so there's nobody has zero points. So no one has so far been completely accurate. But big shout out to Camilo Rubio for predicting correctly Hamilton pole, Vettel for the win. Well done uh, on that one uh, for Camilo. Um, then we had one Vettel Vettel prediction, which was one point, of course. Um, and then loads and loads and loads, including you and including Damien, of Hamilton Hamiltons for one point. Um, that goes pages and pages of folks uh, predicting that. Then a few Rosberg Vettels in there for two points. Uh, Hamilton Rosberg, a uh, couple of a couple of permutations there for two points. Um, and then Rosberg Hamiltons, which were three points, and a bunch of Hamilton or a few at least of Hamilton Rosbergs. Man, I got I'm way down the list here. Just uh, so I I I thought okay maybe Hamilton's going to have a problem. Rosberg is going to be the next guy most likely to win the race if Hamilton has an issue. And all these other people who predicted Hamilton would get hosed and they would get like 20 points and I would be lauded as brilliant and it would just be like the next big thing. That didn't happen. I was wrong. So, <laughs> um, yeah, but uh, I, I want to first say uh, we had, what was it, something like 83, 85 people for the first round. We're up to 115 now. Guys, keep coming. It's a lot of fun to do predictions. And thank you to the people that have added on. Um, we want to give a uh, shout-out to uh, Hugh McDonnell, who uh, went ahead with a Masa Masa. That was a, that was a you know, worthy uh, prediction and uh, you know, just didn't work out in your favor. And then uh, Matis Ornhall went Botas Botas. So the Williams, uh, the people that prediction Williams actually had the most trouble. But uh, really, I, it was a completely reasonable prediction to make. Lots of Rosberg, Rosbergs, lots of Hamilton, Hamiltons. 
all very cool to see. Yeah, and only looks like four folks that actually had Vettel for the win, including, again, Camilo Rubio, who had it uh, also with Hamilton. Oh, I guess five, Sean James also with Vettel. So, yeah, only five folks uh, out of the 115 thought Vettel was going to win, um, which raises the question now for the next race, the Chinese Grand Prix. Um, the spreadsheet, or, sorry, the heuristic model. Yes, thank you. Vettel will thank win you, thank you. Because Vettel won today. Um, how many other folks will think that that's the case? And uh, let's take a look at that. I have Hamilton Hamilton to be on the pole and to win the race in uh, Malaysia. Yep. And I am not changing a single thing. I think that uh, Mr. Toto Wolf is not giving enough weight to strategy. I think Hamilton is showing, displaying a maturity of a multiple champion still in his prime, and I think he'll carry, pick up right where he left off in China. And uh, with less rain trouble, he'll be just fine. You know who's more multiple of a multiple champion than Lewis Hamilton? I can't think of a single person. Who? Oh, me either. So I'm going to go with Hamilton as well. <laughs> no, I, I, uh, as much as I don't like uh, agreeing with you for prediction's sake, because then I can't pull out a lead if something crazy happens, um, I... I I do. I, I agree with your logic. <laughs> That's going to be what happens. Um, so that is a change for me. So I'm going to go under the Facebook page for Fun With Cars. You click on Predictions right at the top to get to this. It's Timeline, About, and then Predictions. Click on that. You click Make Your Prediction and choose who you think is going to be the deal. So I'm saying Hamilton for pole, Hamilton for win, and uh, make my prediction. So that is in there, sir. And I'll be in- eager to look at uh, in two weeks' time when it's t- time to look at the results from China. Um, you know, who thinks what's going to happen, how many people are, are going to jump on the Vettel bandwagon, and then, of course, who actually is on pole and who wins the race, because maybe, maybe the bandwagon is, uh, is the place to be. <laughs> yeah, it's the new uh, bandwagon F1 that uh, we just haven't been talking about yet. I mean, a bandwagon sounds like a pretty fun place to hang out, if, to, if I'm honest. You know, it's like a wagon, you've got a band going. Like, I, I kind of want to be on the bandwagon. Wait, well, if you're on the bandwagon, though, can the band still play? Well, yeah. It's a big enough wagon. I mean, it's like a, it's a big wagon. Oh, this is a big wagon. Right. No, you're not like a radio flyer. I mean, we're talking like <laughs> like parade float size. This is a very adult bandwagon we're talking about. There's plenty of space. Well, adult bandwagon has a bit of a different connotation, I would think. I would, we'll, say, we'll say grown <laughs> no, up bandwagon. I did bandwagon. not say adults only bandwagon. That oh, that's a whole one. other thing. Oh, goodness. <laughs> okay. So I don't I know what it, bandwagons you. Oh man! I, I, yes. Well, listen. It's time for us to partake a bit of tasty Malaysian food, and uh, that means it's time to sign off. Um, so thank you, everyone, for listening. And until China on April twelfth, I'm Robin Warner, and I am Jim Lau. Reminding everyone to visit funwithcars.com to see all the all the episodes we've ever posted. You can listen to them there. You can comment on the shows directly on the page. And, of course, there are links to our Twitter feed and our Facebook page. And from there, you can do predictions and all kinds of fun stuff like that. Also, if you're an email sort of person, you can always email feedback at funwithcars.com and send us your thoughts. And if you're inspired to, please head on over to iTunes and leave us a rating or review for the show in the podcast directory there. That really helps us out. Thanks.